0: Thanks to Slack for supporting The Motley Fool. Slack is a messaging app that brings together all your team's communications in one place, making work simpler and more productive. Go to slack.com to learn more. Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Tuesday, December 19th, and I'm your host, Vincent Shen. If you heard yesterday's episode, you'll know that we're in the middle of our Industry Focus year in review. Each day this week, we'll look back at major stories from 2017 in each of our sectors. And today, joining me via Skype to discuss the biggest developments in consumer retail this year is SeniorFool.com contributor, Asit Sharma. Hey, Asit, happy holidays, and welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, Vince. Happy holidays
0: to you, and happy holidays, listeners of Glad as always to be back. Are you going to be doing any traveling over the next few weeks?
1: Um, no, we're going to stay in town. We're going to chill, get some sleep, get some rest, and then get back to that housework I was telling you about. It's oh, nice. Never ending renovation.
0: So you did the painting. What's up next?
1: So is doing trim. And then a lot of small things got lined up, like a screen door uh, on the kitchen, which is hanging off. One hinge. It's not quite that bad. <laughs> Stuff like that. How about you? Are you you're traveling uh, over the holidays?
0: Yeah, we're going to be up in Philadelphia again, same uh, area we were for Thanksgiving. Um, just to you know, catch up with some family. Uh, we have some people flying in from Florida and uh, elsewhere, so it'll be nice to get everybody together. Awesome. So, one reminder before we get started, the Industry Focus team has assembled a collection of our favorite fool.com stories from 2017. If you'd like to see the list of what we consider the top articles from the year, just shoot a note to industryfocus at fool.com. So now for the main event, Asit and I decided to take the shotgun approach here and try and hit as many major stories as we can. Uh, I I'm gonna be use uh, I'm going to be using a timer to keep us in check and to make sure we avoid running too long on any one topic. So going in chronological order, at least for the first handful of items, we start in January when Lexotica and Esselor announced a fifty billion dollar merger. Both were leaders in the eyewear industry, though they occupied separate But complementary corners of the market, so Luxottica is best known for making frames, what feels like every major fashion brand out there. In addition to operating a network of retail storefronts, think LensCrafters and Sunglass Hut, they also manage iMed, which is the vision benefits provider for something like 40 million people. In the opposite corner, we have Essilor, which was a specialist in making lenses and optical equipment. This is intended to be a merger of equals, Luxottica based in Italy, Essilor in France, with an evenly split board of directors and shared management. What's the latest on this deal?
1: The latest is that the deal looks like it's going to go through. And listeners who are with us in January, I know you're thinking, wait a minute, is this deal done yet? We talked (laughs) about this 12 months ago. But uh, what's good for corporations isn't always necessarily good for consumers. And both the European Commission and the FTC have looked at this deal very carefully to make sure that consumers in their respective regions don't get hurt. The latest is that it looks to be approved by both Uh, trade organizations, and in March is when we probably will see the European Commission slower of the two finally give a thumbs up. In the meantime this year, SLOR up 20%, Luxottica up 13%. Listeners, just the lesson here is, in these huge mergers, there's always some antitrust risk, so even buying stocks on a good idea, you're going to incur a little bit of that risk. This story looks like it's going to have a happy ending.
0: Yep, we've got regulatory approvals from markets like Canada, Australia, Russia, and Japan. Uh, The European Commission, as you mentioned, should make its decision by next March, and both it and the U.S. are expected to okay the deal without any major concessions or conditions. And then, looking ahead uh, to end on this this segment, um, assuming the deal goes through, I think the integration process will be important for investors to follow. And there is some uncertainty in terms of the top management for the combined entity, because the current head honcho at Lexotica, Leonardo Del Vecchio, and his counterpart at Essilor, that's our time. Uh, the his counterpart Essilor Hubert Sagnier, they've both indicated that their ages. They are grooming the proper people to run the company in the future. But there's uh, a little bit of murkiness in terms of the leadership there, and that's something that investors should follow. So our next story, setting the timer, jumps to include February, March, and April. It's also for M and A, and this time it's in the restaurant industry. So Asa, can you give us a quick overview? Of some of the buyouts that, hap- that happened during those several months.
1: Sure. So, um, well, I'm actually going to focus uh, on one of them because this is surprising. It's uh, was the biggest M&A story of the year yep. uh, in this space, and it was actually a buyout of a public company, Panera Bread, by a private company, JAB Holding Company, and JAB Holding Company is a huge European conglomerate which owns a lot of coffee interests and a lot of labels like Pete's Coffee, specialty coffee uh, companies. It owns Dunkin' Donuts and it's branching into other types of businesses like the Panera Bread uh, business. What's very, very interesting to me is in restaurant M&A mergers and acquisitions, we usually think in terms of a struggling competitor that's acquired by a stronger rival. But in this case, Panera Bread was doing just fine i uh, had a great business um, its founder uh, ron shake had also started Obe- bon pan company and a very successful businessman he wanted to to take this company private because he felt that shareholders especially institutional shareholders and the threat of activist shareholders is forcing companies in this industry to make too many short term decisions and that's not creating value in his mind that's destroying value and listeners if you want to read up on this he gives some very uh, good pointers on this in, in an article that was in the Boston Globe, um, and this was this past Sunday, and it's called Five Things to Know um, About Ron Shaikh. And in this industry, going forward, 2018, look for pressure on companies that are successful by these activist shareholders. We've covered a lot of them this year, but uh, this is, it's a double-sided coin. Sometimes it can create a lot of long term value, and sometimes it just ends up destroying it.
0: All right, that's our time. I'm going to add a few notes. So, the other deals, the Panera Bread deal was by far the largest, but the others that happened in February and March included Restaurant Brands International. So, they already operate Burger King and Tim Hortons. They took over Popeyes for $1.8 billion. And then in March, Darden Restaurant scooped up Cheddar Scratch Kitchen for about $780 million. So, we know. From previous episodes on this show, you know we've talked a lot about the ongoing weakness in the restaurant industry, um, and it's certainly made some of the smaller players attractive buyout candidates. But the J.B. Holdings deal, though, if I can uh, speak to it really quickly here, I think it's really interesting because this Panera deal was just one more acquisition in a long string of them for J.B. Holdings. Um, they've already built up a portfolio of complementary businesses like Krispy Kreme, Pete's Coffee, Jacobs do Egberts. Curd Green Mountain and something we didn't even cover in November was JB announced the acquisition of uh Pen bon as well. So with this huge coffee and dining portfolio, uh, Starbucks founder Howard Schultz actually commented he believes JB is trying to become the largest coffee company in the world. So Moving on now to June, a busy month for us with two multi-billion dollar announcements in the grocery industry, the first being Amazon's $14 billion acquisition of Whole Foods Market. I said this still made a ton of headlines and has been covered pretty extensively so far, but any big takeaways or things to watch for investors going forward?
1: I think there are two, Vince. Uh, one, and this has been, as you said, covered extensively in many publications, including The Motley Fool. Uh, the impact on this in the grocery industry is going to be huge. But I believe actually it's going to be positive on the grocery industry in general, and also for the, the new combined company. And that's because this merger is forcing companies to figure out the new model of grocery delivery, which is online ordering, and then oftentimes delivery or drive and pickup in the parking lot. Uh, Amazon is going to accelerate all of this, and it will sharpen the instincts of companies like Walmart, um, like Target we saw, which just bought, shipped. Uh, The other thing which is pertinent to investors, which is not as well covered, is the impact of Whole Foods on Amazon itself. Amazon has, uh, as everyone knows, has focused on revenue in favor of profits, and for all its sales over the last couple of years, it's had $3 billion of uh, operating income, I think in 2015, and just over $4 billion uh, in 2016. Now, Whole Foods has had operating income of $850 million for the last couple of years. We don't have exact numbers, uh, though they released their annual report. Uh, There were a lot of acquisition expenses in there, which cut into that operating income. But you're talking about one-fifth of the profit that Amazon makes in a year they got in this $14 billion acquisition, so there's something really positive on Amazon's income statement. Those of you who uh, have enjoyed investing in Whole Foods and, and now maybe are owning Amazon because you follow them there, it's actually a very uh, sharp boost to the company's ability to take margin out of other places in its business, which, which I find frankly attractive.
0: Thanks, Asset. Our second bout of headlines from June and also in the grocery industry came from companies based overseas. So, Aldi announced that it would look to spend over $3 billion to open an additional 900 stores in the U.S. market. Management at Aldi wants to have about 2,500 stores in this market by 2022, which would make it the third largest supermarket chain. In that same month, its rival in Europe, Lidl, opened its first U.S. location starting on the East Coast. Early targets are for 100 stores. By 2018. So I said, that sounds like a lot more competition for uh, Kroger, for Walmart, Costco, and also the dollar store chains, given that Aldi and Lidl are known for their low price discount focus. Uh, what do you think?
1: This has been surprising somewhat to me, Vince, because this was the year in which uh, Lidl landed on. Shores here in the U.S. Aldi also is going to spend another $1.6 billion just for remodeling on top of the numbers that you gave. And uh, many of us who follow the grocery industry thought there would be an immediate impact, uh, like a doomsday scenario. But the expansion has been concentrated so far right where I am, and you are, in the mid-Atlantic states on the East Coast. And that's given the big chains a chance to study um, how the prices are changing in local markets and how they're going to react. The impact has been muted so far. In fact, one of the trade pub- publications I follow has said that uh, Lidl might actually slow its expansion just a bit because they're finding that sales have not panned out to their projections. Uh, what we have in this very dense corridor is an expansion of chains like Wegmans, uh, which many listeners in the Northeast know, expanding south, and Publix, for our listeners who are down in Florida in the East Coast, they know that chain very well. They're all converging on this central point in the mid-Atlantic. And that gives the incumbents, like Whole Foods, like Walmart, like Costco, Kroger, Target, that gives them all time to study this like a laboratory and figure out how they're going to react. So big news is, not much news yet. Longer term will be more of a problem, probably more from Aldi, because the numbers that Vince laid out for you, it's a much bigger expansion planned by 2022. But it shows you how big The United States is, as a market, it is a gargantuan market. And on this side of the pond, we spend all our time thinking about China, uh, Japan, Europe, all these big markets, and we forget what a tremendous multi-billion dollar industry, the food industry, grocery industry, is here in the U.S. It takes more than just a few years and a few billion bucks to crack it.
0: Yep. So now, for some more recent events that we've covered on the show already, but they're notable and I think worth mentioning for this year in review list. And we won't spend too much time on these. So first, in November, the Department of Justice announced that it would be suing to block AT&T's acquisition of Time Warner. So that merger was originally announced in October 2016, and it was one of the more uh, the uh, bigger deals of the year at 85 billion dollars. And of course, the companies plan to fight this decision. They believe this vertical integration—you have the content creator Time Warner uh, uh, combining with the content distributor at that it does not harm the competitive options for consumers. And there is a direct precedent for this deal. It looks very similar to when Comcast took over NBC Universal, which is approved with some minor concessions. Uh, that said, regulators did run into issues with Comcast keeping its various promises after the deal closed. So, getting burnt that time could explain why the Justice Department is saying no. No to this deal entirely and we expect the legal battle to conclude by next spring and then to close out the year just last week we had the official announcement that Walt Disney would be acquiring a large portion of assets from 21st Century Fox including major television networks the film studio business related uh, Intellectual property and then international assets in India and Europe. So the all stock deal is worth over $50 billion. And Disney CEO Bob Iger has delayed his retirement again from 2019 to 2021 so he can oversee a smooth integration of the two businesses. So I was scanning headlines this morning, Asit, and lawmakers are already expressing some concern over this deal. Wanting to hold, uh, hold hearings, and I'm actually more skeptical that the, this, that this deal will ultimately go through compared to the AT and T and Time Warner tie-up. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, in terms of the final deal provisions? Um, you know, we've talked previously about this potential tie-up.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm not as convinced that antitrust issues will come to the fore here as as much as in the previous uh, AT and T Time Warner deal that you know we just discussed. Basically. Ah, uh, Disney is getting access to a lot of content. It's aiming for s- streaming, and it's and it's going to compete with companies that, if you look at from an antitrust uh, angle, already control the market. It's going to compete against the Google's, the Facebooks, uh, Netflix, Amazon. So, in some ways, from my perspective, of course, I'm no lawyer, although I have played one on TV. No, <laughs> I haven't <laughs> tried and failed um, to audition for. A high school musical, and that was the last acting stint I ever had. However, uh, this company, if anything, opens up the competitive uh, field. And I think that this is good competition versus monopolistic competition. Uh, of course, Disney, the reason that uh, I think, Vince, you are that this may have some. Uh, IRAs by antitrust regulators. Disney is just so large and dominant. Mm-hmm. And so, like your quick perspective, uh, again, I think this is good. I think it'll force more uh, competitive uh, content creation, which is only going to be good for viewers, people who love to watch and, and binge watch. But what are your concerns in terms of this very, very large player uh, coming in and scooping up Fox?
0: Well It's it's about perspective, and we're, we're out of time here, but I'll spend a couple of seconds. I think it's about perspective in that you know, Disney kind of presents this deal as their means of playing defense against uh, the streaming alternatives that have been powered by tech. So you think about companies like Netflix and Amazon and the competitive offerings that they've been able to give consumers, and how that's changing the entertainment consumption landscape. Disney presents this as their opportunity in terms of Hulu, the, ne- the streaming networks that they're going to have coming out soon. This is them, uh, their own version of you know consolidating and circling the wagon so to speak so they can better compete um, but that concludes the more linear portion of our show so up next we're going to talk about some other highlights from the year in a more scattershot way but thanks to slack for supporting the molly fool and industry focus slack is a messaging app that brings all your team's communication together giving everyone a shared workspace where conversations are organized and accessible if you've ever wanted to pull out your hair searching through your email inbox from that one follow-up item or had to look through five different systems and programs to find what you need, then you'll appreciate what Slack can do to save you time and improve your productivity. Slack is a way of life here at The Molly Fool, and among the podcast team, we use the app every single day to set up meetings, prep for each episode, share updates and listen reviews, and just keep each other up to speed on what we're working on. The best part is how Slack connects everything I use most in one place, only to make it more accessible with real-time messaging, searchable archives, and group file sharing, which works with all the apps you might already use, including Salesforce, Zendesk, and Google Drive. You can tailor Slack to your own work with more than 1,000 apps, and with mobile apps for iOS and Android that sync seamlessly, you can be productive anywhere you go. To find out more about Slack, where work happens, go to slack.com. That's S-L-A-C-K dot all right, Asit, we've been talking a lot about consolidation in consumer and retail. Uh, a lot of the big developments we covered were uh, M&A deals, but obviously not all deal talks ended up in an agreement. Uh, what was a more notable one for you that actually was a misconnection from the past year?
1: I think for me, um, Mattel rejecting Hasbro's offer to urge. Now, you and I just talked about this recently on the show, and our thought together was that this would be a great deal for both companies. Hasbro, um, the stronger player, which is really uh, selling through the internet, online channels very vigorously, and then Mattel, is a sort of older school point of sale company which had gotten to trouble with this retail uh, apocalypse that's been occurring over the past year. So, interestingly enough, back to antitrust, the reason that Mattel has rejected this preliminary offer is that it's concerned that um, you know, the FTC could say that there's, there's too much of a monopoly here. Although combined, you know, the companies still have a lot of competition from domestic and global players. They do occupy the, you know two top spots in the U.S. Um, however, I was surprised, I think, to me, that um, Mattel needs Hasbro. I think Mattel's going to have a very hard holiday season. It's still managing inventory problems related to the Toys R Us bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I'm questioning is this a good move? Investing takeaway investors uh, year to date, Hasbro stock is up 17%. Mattel stock is down 45%. Be careful about jumping in as sort of a value play in Mattel. What do you think?
0: I'm going to jump to two more deals just because we're running out of time here. Um, But there are big ones that I want to mention. So, Kraft Heinz Unilever, again, another one that we. That we've mentioned briefly uh, on a, on a recent episode, but in February, Warren Buffett 3G Capital um, behind Kraft Heinz unveiled their next big step for the company's growth, and that was with a 150 billion dollar bid for Unilever. Uh, Unilever rejected that deal promptly, and Kraft Heinz actually withdrew it off the next day, not intending to execute any type of hostile takeover. Um, so we provided a more in depth update of Kraft Heinz on Industry Focus a few weeks ago um, in terms of how the company is searching for its next growth avenue, you guys can jump to that episode, and then T-Mobile and Sprint uh, they had merger attempts fall through in 2014. Those companies were rumored to be discussing a deal again in 2017, but they officially announced an end to those talks in early November. The regulatory environment under Trump may have been more friendly to this deal, but the sticking point this time was control. SoftBank, which is the key shareholder at Sprint, did not want to relinqu- relinquish too much control at the combined entity, considering T Mobile's Legere was already slated to take over as CEO. So that's all the time we got for misconnections. Let's talk about some bankruptcies next. Uh, brick and mortar retailers have closed thousands and thousands of stores this year as the squeeze from e commerce and just intense uh, increasing competition from traditional retailers, too, has pushed some companies over the edge. So, the notable bankruptcy filings in 2017 in the consumer and retail space, uh, we got about two minutes. Which ones do you want to hit, Asit?
1: I want to hit mall based clothing retailers. So, this year, the Limited, Vanity, Gymboree, Wet Seal are just a few examples. Uh, And there's a theme here. Fashion is fickle. Fashion is extremely hard. And these tended to grab the headlines, especially the limited. If you start peeling the onion and looking in deeper, you'll note a pattern. Uh, Payless Shoes and H.H. Gregg, which, um, well, Payless Shoes is a clothing retailer, it's a shoe retailer. H.H. Gregg uh, is an appliance retailer. Uh, what, What this is, companies which don't have a strong niche versus price and or are in fashion and based in malls got hit this year. But it wasn't the end of the world. The retail apocalypse wasn't really about Amazon destroying every retail company. It took out the week in 2017. We talked recently on the store about Canada Goose, which has a clicks and bricks business model as an example of how you survive in this future dominated by Amazon.com.
0: Yep. You mentioned Toys R Us during the segment for when you're talking about the Hasbro Mattel deal. That, that has not quite happened yet. And then uh, True Religion also is another one. Gander Mountain, another example. But among all these, those themes, declining foot traffic, especially for the mall-based stores, you know, these various store closures, they're looking to create leaner operations. And some, like The Limited, have transitioned entirely to online-only businesses. And I'm not, I would not be surprised to see that trend continue on in 2018. So our last two topics for this 2017 year in review. Um, it's been a while since we covered the gaming industry on the show, so I'll be doing a deeper dive on the major casino operators early in the new year, but for now, we can point out some tailwinds for these companies. What are we seeing, Asset?
1: So we're seeing uh, high rollers coming back into casinos. Macau is great... Uh, sort of microcosm of the gaming industry, mm-hmm. and in October it had gross revenue growth of 22%, a $3.3 billion monthly haul. And What this says to me is that the high rollers are back, uh, especially in Asia. Uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping scared off a lot of uh, gamblers with his reform started about two years ago. They're creeping back into the casinos. It also says that stock market valuations around the world are plumb. It's not just the US, major stock markets in, in almost every geography, except for a few developing uh, regions, Latin America in particular, have been phenomenal lately. And that is has a wealth effect on the psychology. You need these very wealthy people to get back into the casinos for the gaming industry to have a good year. And that's what we're seeing. It's not just tourism and the small players like myself and Vince. It is the deep pocket, extremely wealthy people. Who feel great about where the markets are heading and stable global GDP over the past few years?
0: Yep. Macau has reported positive year-over-year gains in their gaming revenue for the first eleven months of 2017. This trend actually started back in August 2016, and the market's picking up some serious momentum. The the ten month they've seen ten months of double-digit growth over the prior year, and then October, as you mentioned, saw about 3.3 billion dollars, which is the highest level in three years. So keep in mind. The, the Macau region is also facing some pretty easy comps right now, and we're still far from the peak revenue levels that casino operators enjoyed back in 2014 before that Chinese government crackdown on you know money laundering, uh, outflow of money from China. But companies have already opened and continue to open uh, luxurious billion-dollar resorts in the region to attract both mainstream tourists and high rolling VIPs. So closing us out right on time. The last Jedi premiered last week, so we have to look at this year's box office. The last time we covered this industry, theater operator stocks were underperforming, if not getting hammered by the market, but it appears the fall and winter release schedule is kind of bringing the total box office receipts for 2017 up to stronger levels. What are your thoughts, Austin?
1: So, November receipts for Thor and Coco, a billion dollars, and that's uh, much better than w- when we talked about the movie industry in the summer. We actually predicted that by the end of the year, a strong season would bring the industry whole. And, and that's what looks like has happened. And it really drives home the point for investors, we talked about in June, we're interested in the Cineplex companies that uh, invariably, American consumers go to the movies. You need just a strong schedule. They'll have a good year. And I wanted to give my review, non-spoiler review, of The Last Jedi here. Uh, (laughs) Vince and I have been talking about this for the last couple of days. A sliding scale 1 to 10. I started out in the theater, 8 or 9. As the days have gone by, uh, I'm slipping down to about a 6 to a 7. I want the um, whole series to take on more risk in the next installment. I'll leave it at that flip it back to you, Vince, and everyone have a great holiday.
0: Thanks, Sessa. I'm really excited uh, to see it tonight. Actually, I've I've not yet seen it, which is surprising considering when The Force Awakens came out, I had seen it three times in the first week. But the movie has two more weekends to close out the year strong, and if it can top the current top-grossing movie of 2017, which is Beating the Beast, another Disney feature. Then Star Wars films will be the highest-grossing titles for three years running with The Force Awakens in 2015, Rogue One last year, and now the newest part of the trilogy. And one more thing in this industry uh, I want to mention, and that's MoviePass and how that service made headlines by making its monthly subscription cost just $9.99 per month. So that's about 10 bucks to see one movie per day. Every day of the month, and if anything, I think it's changing how consumers view the movie-going process. And similar offerings from the leaders in this industry, we've already seen Cinemark, for example, roll out its Movie Club. I think that could help boost attendance, uh, which has been going down for years now. To, uh, you know, revenue for the industry goes up, ticket sales, but actual ticket sales numbers are on have been trending downward. Um, these companies might lose money on ticket sales with. Services like this, but they generate the bulk of their profits from the concessions anyway. So I think it's an interesting opportunity and it'll be really fun to see how the companies balance offerings like this. But that's a wrap for our 2017 year in review. Thanks for tuning in. Asit, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Vince. Right. Austin Morgan is the producer of Industry Focus. People in the program may own companies discussed in the show, and the Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything. Based only on what you hear during the program. Happy holidays, fools. Fool on.